We've, uh, we're in the Gospel of Luke this semester. We're looking at the life of Jesus. Kind of taking a hop, skip, and a jump through the Gospel of Luke because there's a lot there, so we can't cover all of it. Uh, but we're asking the question, Doctor Who? Uh, Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. So we're asking, Doctor Who? Who is this Jesus? Uh, and we saw the first week, the first few verses of this Gospel. What Luke said was that he set out... He determined, he was very intentional in setting about writing down an intentional um, and orderly account of the things which Theophilus, who he's writing to, or us, have been taught concerning this Jesus. I don't know how much you like or enjoy the Olympics. Uh, How long ago is that? A year or two ago? I can't remember when the last Olympics were, so that tells you how much I paid attention. But... um, Something about the last Olympics, or really any time the Olympics are in a place that's in a, in a bad time zone, uh, at least for primetime TV, right? Something you'll notice is that every night, um, your seat, you turn on you know, NBC, the, the primetime network, um, and every night between those primetime hours of like 7 and 9, is usually something pretty popular or something that most Americans are going to want to watch. Uh, and so you're seeing it and you're watching it and you, it has all the feel of like a live event, like happening in the moment, right? Uh, in this day and age of Twitter and our smartphones, it's a little harder to, to get that feeling, right? Uh, but the thing about it, especially this last Olympics when the time zone was a little different was you're watching sports and you're watching them as they happened during the day, but you're not watching them live, right? Because what NBC does they want as many eyeballs as they can get from 7 to 9 p.m. on primetime uh, to tune in and get the ratings up, right? And so they kind of pick and choose what are we going to show during that primetime slot. So you're getting everything as it happened. You're not just getting it when it's happening in that order, right? There's an intentionality as to how they present that to us. There's something interesting when you read through the book of Luke, and especially when you get to the chapter or the passage that we're going to be in tonight in Luke chapter 4. Uh, We have this story about Jesus coming to his hometown of Nazareth and preaching in the synagogue. And what's interesting about it is if you read the Gospel of Matthew, uh, in between the baptism and temptation of Jesus, which we looked at last week, in Matthew's Gospel, there's some nine chapters of things that happen in between the baptism and temptation of Jesus and this story. Uh, Mark, I think the Gospel of Mark has some six chapters of things happening in between Jesus' baptism and temptation and then the story of him visiting his hometown of Nazareth and preaching in the synagogue. Luke, however, right, he told us at the beginning of his Gospel, he wanted to write an orderly account, not a chronological account, but at this point, he's kind of piecing some things together of what happened early on in Jesus' public ministry. And for some reason... Luke makes the very intentional choice to put this story as the first public event of Jesus' ministry, at least as we read it in Luke's gospel. Could there be some reason that Luke does this? Well, obviously I'm making the point there is a reason. So, what is the first thing that Luke wants to tell us? After he gets through Jesus' temptation, what is the first thing that Luke wants to tell us about Jesus' public ministry? This is what he wants to tell you. He wants to tell you that Jesus started gaining fame, and he went back to his hometown where he grew up, and he went to the synagogue and he stood up and preached, and his hometown rejected him. Not only did they reject him, they end up wanting to kill him by the end of this passage. That's what we read here. So let's read this together. Luke chapter 4, let's start in verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. 
And a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and so he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him, and they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of the town. And they brought him to the brow of the hill in which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is God's word for us tonight. I want to look at three things with you. Three things happen here. In Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, three things that his hometown crowd does for him. First one, we'll see that they reject his message. Secondly, we'll see that they reject him, the man. And then, they're gonna, then the final thing we'll look at is that they rejected his mission. Okay? So the first one is this. They reject his message. They reject what he said. Okay, he's in the synagogue, uh, apparently as was his custom on Sabbath day. He would enter the synagogue of wherever he was. Um, And so he does this as was his custom on this day and as was his custom uh, or was was becoming his custom. He, um, as notable teachers, would be there. They would be invited up to read. And so that's what happens. He's handed the scroll. He's invited up to come read it. And he reads. And what's interesting is Luke actually says he finds the place where it's written. In your English Bible, it's Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. That's where Jesus finds to read, okay? Now, even without any context, you just look at that verse 18 and 19, right? Without any context, even maybe if you don't even know it's in the Old Testament, um, you don't even know it's in the Bible, you just read that passage and you read that Jesus read those, that, those words. You're like, that makes sense that Jesus would read something like that. And you also think to yourself, like, that's a pretty awesome passage. Like, that'll preach, like, pretty easily, um, just reading something like that. But here it is, the fact that Luke tells us he found that passage. The fact that he tells the crowd, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. The fact that by the end of all of it, they want to kill him, right? It's kind of cluing us in to there's something else going on. And there is, right? 
Well, the book of Isaiah is one of the richest, longest books in the Old Testament. Um, it's second to only the Psalms in how much it's quoted in the New Testament. Um, it's about God's judgment on Israel, uh, specifically through the hands of raising up Assyria uh, to basically overthrow Israel. But at the same time, it stands out because of how vividly it promises God's mercy and his favor uh, and his restoration even in the light of judgment. Okay, So that's kind of what Isaiah is known for. Now, here's the fact, the thing about Nazareth. The whole fact that there were Jews in Nazareth and that there was a synagogue in Nazareth is specifically because of that judgment. When the nations began overthrowing Israel and Judah, what happened to all the Jews is they were spread out because they were conquered and they were taken captive into all these different places. And so the very fact that there are Jews in Nazareth was because of this judgment. That's Jesus' hometown, hometown crowd, right? Um, and this is actually a very, apparently a very conservative enclave of Jews that would have been in Nazareth, clinging to traditional Jewish values and kind of huddling up against the impeding Greek culture. By the way, does that sound familiar to anyone? Hmm, interesting. So it's that context that Jesus reads this passage from Isaiah 61. And it's with that context that you kind of start feeling the weight of what Jesus reads, right? How would a crowd like that, living in a foreign land, basically, Nazareth was not where the Jews naturally lived, and they're hearing this word, this good word about God uh, setting people free and, um, and proclaiming liberty and all these things, right? But the biggest overturn, look at verse 19. This is the biggest overturn, overtone of the passage. Verse 19, he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This thing, the year of the Lord's favor, it's a thing from the Old Testament. It's actually called the year of Jubilee. Let me just read it to you from, you know, I know Leviticus is the thing that kills your quiet times, but there's actually some good stuff there. Leviticus 25 verse 10, we read about Jubilee. It's this, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property uh, and each of you shall return to his clan. Okay. So here it was. Jubilee was a time of blanket, dare I say it, amnesty. Kind of a buzzword these days, right? Blanket amnesty, blanket redemption, blanket restoration, debts canceled, slaves set free, property returned to the rightful owner. Jubilee was supposed to be the best year on a 50-year calendar, right? It's the year that everybody looks forward to. So here's the thing about Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 was prophesying the jubilee to end all jubilees. Basically, the jubilee that was telling people no matter what wrongs you have suffered, no matter what oppression you have suffered, there is coming a day when there will be a one that has the Spirit of the Lord on him and he will usher in the jubilee to end all jubilees. And so here's the question. If that's what it's about, why do they end up wanting to kill him? Isn't that good news? Well, here's the hint. Look at verse 22. It says that they marveled at his gracious words. That's like a southern English translation, I think. I'm not like a language expert, but I do think it's interesting that the word grace in that verse in the Greek is a noun. They marveled at his words of grace. What, why were they marveling at his words? So it wasn't like, how, like he was eloquent. It was actually the content of what he was saying. Well, here it is. When you go to Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, you'll notice something. Jesus didn't read the whole verse. He stopped. He stopped and he rolled up the scroll and he sat down and he said, I'm done. 
That's the words of grace that he's marveling at. What did, what did he leave out? Well, Isaiah 61 two says, To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the next phrase is, And the day of vengeance of our God. That's what Jesus leaves out. And that's what they're mad at him about. Think about this with me. For some 600 years leading up to Jesus' life and ministry, the Jewish people are ruled by foreign kings and foreign rulers. And so when they come to passages like this, they find comfort in the fact that they read that God will one day judge all of his people's enemies. But what Jesus is explicitly saying is that time is not yet. But the time of grace is. That's what they're marveling at. His words of grace. Um, John or Jesus, depending on how you read it, in John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now here again is the question. Why isn't that great news to these people? I suggested this. What did these people want? I'll just put it in a nutshell. They wanted Israel to be great again. That's what they wanted. And I purposely chose those words. They wanted Israel to be great again. That's what they wanted. And basically Jesus is saying, no, no, no. That's not what I'm coming to bring. That's what he's saying. Um, And what you find in the New Testament is that over and over, even the disciples themselves, over and over, those people that were looking for an earthly, physical, tangible overthrow of all the bad things in their life, an earthly kingdom, a political kingdom, a social revolution kingdom, you'll find that they're actually continually frustrated by Jesus. Why? Because you find Jesus doing things like this and trying to point him to this, that first and foremost, Jesus is trying to say that he came to bring spiritual deliverance, not political deliverance, not circumstantial deliverance, but spiritual deliverance, and specifically spiritual deliverance from the power of sin. That's his words of grace. And by implication, that's what Jesus is trying to tell them and us is our greatest need. But again, by the end of the passage, they don't want any of that. They say, no, we want Rome kicked out. We want all the foreigners kicked out. We want Israel to be great again. Again, sound familiar? That's what they want. Jesus takes a a text of justice and judgment. And he turns it into pure mercy and grace. That's what Jesus does. And they hated him for it. Is that surprising to you? We need to move on, but I just want to make this point. What Jesus exposes here for them and for us is our inclination to view all our problems as something that exists out here. On the outside of me. Right? Everything that is wrong in my life is something that's not right out here. As far away out here as I can get so that I don't have to spend any time focusing here. Right? If I just had a better major, if I just had gone to a better school, if I was just making better grades, if I just got that scholarship, if I just got that right job, if she would just go out with me, everything would be so, it would be okay. You do that the rest of your life, you will be miserable. 
But that's our natural inclination, is to view our problems as something that needs to be fixed out here. And what Jesus and the Gospels continually point to is that our need squarely begins in our heart. And I would suggest to you that's the essence of what they're rejecting. They don't want to hear it. So I know that was a long one, but it's a big one to kind of give you an understanding of where the, the, this passage, what, what Luke is getting at. So that's rejecting the message. The second thing here, rejecting the man. Okay, So not only do they reject what he said, they reject him. They know who he is. They know he's Joseph's son. But they reject him, the man, who he was. So he rolls up the scroll. He finishes reading it. He sits down and he says, Oh, and by the way, that scripture has been fulfilled right now because you just heard me read it. That's power. Like to be a fly on the wall at that moment, right? And they're kind of puzzled and they're marveling and they don't know what to do with it, right? Basically, Jesus is saying that passage, that passage that if you have no context of where it's from, you'll say, man, that'll preach. Jesus is saying, that's me. I'm here and I'm here to do all of those things. And I'm, it's been fulfilled today in your hearing. That's what Jesus says. If you're not a Christian or if uh, you're questioning or whatever, where, however you consider your relationship to Christianity... Um, that's one thing that, need, that you, maybe you need to understand um, is that when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to this religion, whatever you want to call it, whatever you're trying to deal with, it is part and parcel, sum and total. All of it has everything to do with this man, Jesus of Nazareth. Like none of it makes sense apart of him. None of it goes together without him. That's what he's saying. All of it has to do with him. This is kind of what um, C.S. Lewis kind of gets at in Mere Christianity. When he says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. Who reads the Bible and then says, oh, by the way, because I read that to you, it's fulfilled. Jesus did because he knew who he was, right? All of it, everything, every bit of it has, is wrapped up in who Jesus is and who Jesus was. And look, even if you're a Christian, you grew up in the church, you feel like you're so strong in the faith. We need to be reminded of this. That the whole thing, this Christian thing, whatever it is, whatever you're trying to figure out that it is in this thing called college, right? Or life. It has everything to do with this man. It has everything to do with who Jesus is and who Jesus was and what Jesus said and what he said he came to do and what he actually did. I mean, think, for instance, how if we kept reminding ourselves and or at least growing in this knowledge, think about the implications and how we deal with the Bible. Um, if you're a Christian or not. But if you're a Christian, how you deal with the Bible and you think about how I, I just think it's fair to say most of us Christians, we when the subject of like how much we read our Bible comes up, we're all just kind of like. Not enough. You know, we're all like sad about it, right? But think about the implications of this. Because sometimes we can come to something like this, or we can go to a conference, or we can go to the hip church in town or wherever we're visiting, right? And we kind of go and it's like, man, yeah, it was great because it was some kind of interesting tidbit on my life or my circumstances or it was great or whatever. Or we can read the scriptures and listen to the Bible preached the way the Holy Spirit intended or the way that Jesus did. As God's very words, continually holding out one thing over and over again. Jesus himself. 
It is all wrapped up in who he is. That's why he says this to his hometown crowd. Because he's basically saying, you know what Isaiah 61 is about and you want it so bad, but you don't want it if it has to do with me. That's what he's telling them. And he's saying, what he's trying to encourage them, exhort them in, is you can't have it without me. It's all about me. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. I'm the one here to do these things that this prophet said 700 years ago. That's what Jesus is saying. The implications of the gospel are that our need and our needs are far greater, far deeper, and far more desperate than we have ever even scratched the surface of imagining. But what it does at the same time, what the gospel does at the same time, is it says Jesus meets each and every and all of those needs. All of them. Could it be, if we're honest, could it be that what we find hard to believe about the gospel, whether we're a Christian or not, you know, if they're Christian, we find ourselves struggling. We don't see it as real in our life or whether we're not a Christian. And so we just don't know if we want to know what to do with it. Could it be this is what we actually find so hard to believe? Like, do we really believe that Jesus can handle all of me? Like, yeah, yeah, I know the Christians say that. But is it true? Do we really think that Jesus really does know all of our need? Does he actually know what I'm going through? Does he actually have my best interest in mind? How could he? What is it? Ask yourself this. What is it that you think you need? What is it the thing in your life right now that you're saying to yourself, if this just fell in line, my life would be fine. What is it? What is it that your mind just automatically goes to without even thinking? Daily. Maybe when you're bored. Maybe when you're out on a Thursday night of all nights, right? What is it? Or what is it that you say to yourself or to someone else when you say, what is it that you mean when you say, yeah, you just don't know what it's like? You ever found yourself saying that to somebody? You just don't know what it's like. And here's the thing. You're probably right. I probably don't. The question is, do you really believe or not that Jesus does? We read as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, For you know, he tells us, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Does he know? Man, he entered into it. He took it on himself. He knows. But they reject him for it. They don't believe it. They don't want any of it. So they reject what he said, his message. They reject him. They reject who he is. They, don't, they can't get past him being the carpenter's boy. Um, and they can't get past this bold claim of fulfilling scripture. The final thing here is they also reject his mission. They actually end up rejecting what he's trying to say that he came to do and who he came for. That's what they ultimately end up rejecting. And this is actually ultimately why they end up wanting to kill him. Okay? Um, These two Old Testament stories, uh, if you caught that, 
Um, these are what set them off when he starts talking about these two Old Testament stories. Uh, Jesus kind of calls them on wanting a sign. And so then he says, you know, what? I'm not going to give you a sign. I'm going to tell you about two heroes of the faith. Does he tell them about Abraham? Does he tell them about Ronald Reagan? I mean, sorry, Moses? No. Tells them about a widow in Zarephath. We don't even know her name. And he tells them about Naaman the Syrian, a general, a commander in an enemy's army. Okay? That's who he says he's going to tell them. So the widow thing, it's in 1 Kings 17. Um, it was during an extreme famine, as it said. Um, and God actually sends Elijah to this widow and says, go to this widow uh, and ask her for food. And Elijah's like, God, there's like a famine here. Um, and so he goes to this widow who has nothing, who's actually preparing for herself and her son to die. And Elijah does what God said, and he asks her for food. And she's like, are you crazy? And he says, God told me to ask you. And so she says, okay. She makes him food, and it's a miracle because he keeps giving, providing him food even in the midst of famine. Naaman, 2 Kings 5, we're told that he was a mighty man of valor. He was a top commander in Syria, but he was a leper. Uh, and so he finds out about this prophet named Elisha, and so he goes, and Elisha says, go wash in the Jordan, and God says you'll be clean. And so Naaman has a choice, either believe God and wash and be clean, or I go away and rot and die. So he makes the choice to wash and be clean, right? Here's the question. What did these two have in common? Other than the fact that they were both Gentiles. What these both had in common was that at the end of the day, neither of them had any other choice other than to believe God. No matter how outrageous it seemed. That's what they had in common. They had no other choice but to depend on God because life was not going to get any worse for them. And so here's what Jesus is saying. If you want to receive the benefits of the promises of the Jubilee that I am bringing, you have to have faith. What kind of faith, Jesus? Oh, the faith like these two Gentiles. And then we're told they were filled with wrath and they wanted to kill him. That's what happens here. You have to understand, I told you what Jubilee was about, right? Let me put it in, in, in common phrases. Jubilee was the year of the reject. Jubilee was the year that all the rejects in society got to feel normal. Jubilee was the year that all the rejects got to feel like, you know what, my life is not as terrible as it really is. It was the year for rejects. It was about restoring the poor, the needy, the debtor, the alien, the dreamer, the downtrodden. Right? And Jesus is saying, this is what he's saying to his hometown. Y'all don't get it if you don't understand these are the kind of people that I've come for. That's what he's telling them. And they want to kill him because of it. It's a fascinating thing. When you read through the Gospels and you kind of see different things happening here and there, there's one fascinating aspect to me of the Gospels, and and it's encapsulated in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, this awesome sermon that Jesus preached that Matthew records for us most fully. Uh, We'll look at it, Luke's version of it, later in the semester. But in uh, Matthew 5, verse 20, Jesus says this in that Sermon on the Mount. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, like the most righteous people in the world, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said that and he wasn't joking. 
Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so basically what Jesus is reiterating, something the Bible tells us, that there's a a righteousness that God requires. Um, there's There's a standard of righteousness required of us to be in right standing with him. And according to Jesus, that standard is perfection. That's what Jesus is saying. And this is why I think it's an interesting thing that Jesus would say that. Because when you read through the Gospels and you look at the people of Jesus' day, and especially his own people, the Jews, it was the people like the scribes and Pharisees that came the closest to at least appearing like they met that standard. They hate Jesus. But then you look at the people in society and the rest of the Gospels that seem to be the furthest from that standard. They're flocking to Jesus. Even when Jesus is saying things like that, they flock to him and they can't get enough of him. And so the question is, and they, not only do they flock to him, they're welcome and accepted by him. And so the question for us, for any of us, for all of us is, what are we going to do with that? Because we've got to do something with it. What are we going to do with the fact, or what are we going to do when we realize and admit that it actually is those kind of people that feel the most unwelcome and the most unsafe in our midst? Those of us who say, like, we follow that Jesus that they all used to flock to, right? What are we going to do when we realize that we have passively and sometimes very sadly, very actively forbidden people from being in our midst? God forbid we repent of it. It's another story. How many times, you read through the Gospels, how many times did Jesus prove that he came for the rejects of the world, right? Um, He meets the outcast leper. He doesn't just heal the outcast leper. He touches him. You did not touch lepers. Jesus did. Uh, He potentially scandalously initiates conversation, um, not only with a woman, but a promiscuous woman uh, at, at a well in Samaria. He lets a woman of the city, in other words, a prostitute, bathe and wash his feet with her tears and her hair. He dines and he fellowships with greedy scoundrels like Levi and Zacchaeus. He changes the heart of a befuddled Pharisee, self-righteous Pharisee Nicodemus. He calls Peter the disciple a rock when Peter was anything but a rock. He was the definition of jello. He calls the vile persecutor Saul out of death. And into life on a road to Damascus. And borrowing from one gospel writer and changing the words a bit. Now, if I were to write of all the other rejects that Jesus claimed for himself, I suppose the whole world could not claim, could not contain the books that could be written. When are we going to believe in our heart of hearts that these are the kind of people that Jesus came for? In other words, people just like us. I think Paul says it best in 1 Timothy when he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners or rejects of whom I am the foremost. Here's the thing. You take that verse from 1 Timothy. What kind of group would we be if every single person in this room believed that? (laughs) Like... Jesus came to save messed up people. Oh, and by the way, I'm the most messed up person in this room. 
By the way, if you lived with a bunch of people that thought they were like worse than you, not in a, like a hate myself way, but that would be a fun house to live in. Nobody would act like they were better than their roommates. Everybody would probably do things for each other and just kind of get along. It would be a nice place, wouldn't it? I think we're beginning to see why Luke records this here and now. And here's the thing. I'm going to close with this. Does anything sound familiar here? Jesus claims to be God. The crowd's filled with wrath. And they take him to a hill outside the city to kill him. Sound familiar? As one commentator says, the careful reader now has a notion of how it's all going to end. I think that's why Luke puts it right here. The careful reader now has a notion of how it will all end. This Jesus, this Messiah, this Savior will be exactly as the prophet Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53 some 700 years before Jesus even lived. Isaiah 53, verse 2, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by, man, by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now here's the question. Why in the world would God send a Savior like that? Interestingly, the prophet doesn't end there. He says this. Surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Some 700 years before Jesus even lived, what the prophet, what God through the prophet was telling his people and us was, yes, I'm sending a rejected Savior. But I'm sending him for the rejects. And so there's hope. And there's life. And there's love. And there's grace. And there's mercy. Would we be those people that believe that tonight? Let's pray. Father, we've... We know what rejection feels like, but we feel that it's hard to believe that you could really restore us from that. It's exactly what you've done, and you've offered it all to us in Jesus. We pray that you would write the truths of this grace and this mercy and this life upon our hearts. We pray it in his name. Amen.